Most Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened Podcast. Britt Hartley, my co-host with me, and uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. My voice is still a little bit recovering from being sick, so I apologize, but I'm going to do my best to push through because I'm just really excited to finish our conversation that we had last week Um, because when we got done with it, we both had more to say, which is not surprising. We're both, you know, pompous windbags, so (laughs) this will be really good. But if my voice is a little crackly, I apologize and I'll mute when I need to. So, Yeah, last week you... uh... You dove into this topic of uh, morality without religion or without God and the idea of like when you deconstruct religion, how does one create a morality and how can we trust that that morality is effective? And there's some places in kind of that conversation that I want to just talk, you know, have a conversation with you and just kind of talk out and see what maybe your thoughts are. But, um, I've been, you know, thinking about this episode we did last week, prepping for it for a few weeks, and then over the course of the last week, knowing we would do a part two, thinking a lot about it. And I've watched several videos, a ton of them. And the one I watched this morning, the guy made this comment. He said, uh, yes, people can be moral without God. They just can't justify why something is good and why something is bad. And this seems to be the uh, the rack that, to that the religionists hang their hat on um, is this idea that, yeah, I mean, all people can have a morality and that morality can be effective or ineffective, but that a person who doesn't have an ultimate authority out in the universe, that's God to say, yeah, well, God thinks this is good. And God thinks that is bad is simply guessing and, and creating arbitrary, Uh, constructs or expectations by which someone gauges what is good and what is bad. And I just want to get your kind of your thoughts on that before I share a few as well, but your thoughts on whether religion is right, like it, it has the ability to name an ultimate good and an ultimate bad while the rest of us who aren't believers uh, are just making assumptions about what is good and what is bad. Um, any thoughts from you kind of on that, that phrase? I just gave a lot of yeah, stuff. But, yeah. Yeah. So that phrase comes up a lot. Like you, I like to listen to a lot of debates. That's where I can kind of see these ideas being battled out in real time. And <clears throat> excuse me. And so it, it comes up a lot that without God, there's no um, orientation piece to be able to make sense of right and wrong. And it comes up in almost every debate where you're talking about morality and God And the interesting thing, this is a, I was looking at a study that I think correlates with this. 
there was a study that was trying to figure out, you know, why are people get super into astrology? Why are people fundamentalists? And it's for different reasons. So for astrology, they tested all of these people who, and they would rate, you know, how they felt about astrology, the horoscopes and that kind of thing. And the only determiner whether you would be more into astrology or not based on the study was if you ranked higher in narcissism um, or just this kind of idea, you know, this kind of more self-serving um, way of looking about the world that you will tend more towards astrology because you can always, you know, the planets are moving because of you. You're the center of the universe, right? But for religion and fundamentalism, one thing that they said uh, from the study that I'll link in the show notes, it's from a think tank I like called Big Think. And um, it showed that people who have a high need for closure are more likely to be religious, specifically are more likely to be fundamentalist. And so I think there's something there. I think there's two things going on. I think one of those things is that when you have that desire for closure, if you're a personality type that gets really uncomfortable, if there's no like final say, some sense of closure, if that is just extremely uncomfortable for you, then someone coming in and saying, God says, is going to be very soothing. That's going to be very helpful. It may even be the thing that will help you to walk forward in your life rather than kind of just be consumed by the chaos. And so you can see the religion that we came from. There's a statement that says, you know, once this leader has spoken, the thinking has been done. And for some personality types like you who like to kind of push up against authority, that's not going to feel great, that statement. But mm. for some people who um, really, really need a sense of closure in order to just function in their life, that statement that once I say it, the thinking is done is actually very soothing. And so I do think that that's part of what's going on here is that if you have that need to have a final say so that you can move forward with a decision, um, that God piece or that commandment piece is going to be very fulfilling and soothing for you. Whereas you and me, the conversation is always open, right? We're always having to check our morality check people's experiences, check people's feelings. Like that conversation is always open. It's a little bit more chaotic that way. Um, and so some personality types can handle that better than others. And then the other thing is, I think people get trapped with the idea that God is the only way to orient yourself with this question. <clears throat> we talked last time that another way to orient when you're talking about good and bad is just with suffering. And once you can say, once you can get to the point where you can say suffering is bad, most suffering is the most bad, then you can start to kind of make a line and say, this seems to be good and this seems to be bad. But it is really complex. I was thinking about the topic of um, women wearing hijabs in Islam. And that one is really tricky because we have a lot of data that shows like, you know, it's really not great when women feel they have to constantly cover themselves. Modesty culture can be really damaging, but then we have a lot of women who self report that they want to wear this clothing, that they feel better. They want everyone to wear it. And so you have a lot of, you're in a mess. You're in a pretty big mess there um, to figure out, is this a good thing or not? Because, uh, 
you can't pull in that God that just says, this is a, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. So we're all going to do it. So those are my thoughts. If you have a need for closure, that is going to be more enticing to you to have a God or a prophet or a scripture. That's the final say. And then also um, there are other ways to orient without God. Suffering is usually the one that everyone else uses if you're not going to be using God. And you kind of make a line of morality on the basis of human suffering or conscious creature suffering. Mm. So this idea that, uh, yes, people can be moral without God. They just can't justify why something is good and why something is bad. I was telling you as off the air as we were getting ready to go on, you know, you could take a hundred people who are religious and they all might go, yeah, I know good and I know what bad and God's my ultimate authority who, who has already laid out what that is. And so I just follow it. But you and I both know that every one of those hundred people inside their heads would di disagree on some point with the other 99. So yes, inside a religionist head, they can claim, like, I believe there's this outer authority, and I know they've given commandments and rules. I know they've told us what we're supposed to do and what we're not, what's good and what isn't. So hence, I know. But the reality is it's not any different than getting 100 atheists together in that whatever your God is, again, if we took 100 random people, some of those people are going to be from Islam. They're going to have various factions within Islam. There's going to be Christians and various factions within Christians. And uh, there will be other religions represented, um, the Jewish faith, for instance. And in all of those people, there's going to be disagreement about which parts of uh, these rules we've abandoned because they become obsolete, which of these rules we hold on to, the degree of violence which is uh, condoned by God within very fa various facets of Christianity or of Islam uh, are debated. And so while the religionist likes to throw out the argument that God makes it so that we can create an absolute morality, the reality is that there's no way 100 people could ever get together and do that. The second thing would be that they're not very effective at doing it anyway. So if I take a, you know, you and I come from Mormonism. So if we take a, 100 Mormons and you know, as you pointed out, this idea that, you know, once the decision's made, the thinking has been done. The moment we stop thinking, we allow bad ideas to go on for much longer than they would have. We talked about this for a moment last week. So if, for instance, your religion has racist theology or it values slavery, which has happened at various times in human history, if it uh, punishes uh, the victims of trauma, uh, which has also happened in religion. Those those uh, morals, those rules, those behaviors and punishments for those behaviors tend to go on and can go on for hundreds and sometimes even a thousand years before somebody comes along and goes, I don't think that's a good idea. So by having an outer authority that none of us can really pick up the phone and call, even with prayer, if you believe that's effective, we can't get God to lay out any sort of real hard line on what he's good with and what he isn't. So we're left with other humans speaking and interpreting on his behalf. And now we're even, now we're even an extra layer removed from ourselves. 
So the argument that religion can come up with a better morality, I, I don't buy into. The fact that the idea that religion can uh, make adjustments quicker and easier, I don't buy into. And so again, if we took 100 people that are atheists, 100 people who believe in religion, um, I, I just don't see any more agreement on one side than the other. Um, there's also this, this idea that, you know, when I, I listened to Sam Harris and he did a, a little video on this, he did a TED talk and the TED talks up on YouTube and you can watch it, but he argues like, why wouldn't we use science to create morality? Um, he talks about how when we use science, it allows space for the exception to the rule. So for instance, he used the example of chess and chess, there's the golden rule that you don't give up your queen. And he makes the comment that, you know, yeah, that's a true statement almost all the time. And there are exceptions where it is in your best interest and possibly the only path to victory to give up your queen. And in the real world, there may be, uh, again, we don't live in a black and white world. There may be rules that for the most part hold, for instance, don't lie. Um, I think most of us agree that a pattern of dishonesty uh, will not help you and will cause lots of hurt to others. So we have this rule in our society not to lie. And there are moments where lying is necessary. And, and I know some people offer the opposite opinion here, but if if I was living in 1940-something, you know, Germany, and uh, the Nazis were coming to my door to ask if I was hiding any Jews, and I probably would be hiding some Jewish people. And, I have uh, hold on. I gotta stop you there because I just I read this study. I like to read a lot of studies, but I read this study. This one's particularly for for the Mormon part of our audience. But they did a study where they asked uh, young men who were about to leave on their mission, so they're in the MTC, and so it's very like this is the commandments. You know, it's very very structured, right? And they asked them, "Would you lie in that scenario that you're talking about? You know, Anne yeah. Frank's in your house, Nazis knock on the door. Yeah. Would you lie?" And most of them said, um, "No, they wouldn't lie in that scenario. It's wrong." Yeah. And then, so two years later, you know, they're coming home. They ask them the same question. It's a very small study, but I I thought it was really funny. Um, they asked them the same question, and then they said yes that they would lie. And like some life had happened in between, you know the MTC training center and when they yeah. got home, um, which is super interesting, but I, I think you did a really good job this time. And, and last uh, our last talk to of really deconstructing the idea that the security that you do feel or the closure that you do feel by trying to point to a Bible verse or a person or a God is an illusion, even within the religion. And so um that's a that's a good point that even if you're clinging to that sense of closure, the clinging to that sense of trying to make this easier, it's uh, if you can get a black and white um, out of the world, you know that you're operating under some form of illusion because it's just really complicated. But to your point, you know, Sam Harris and other people are it's really amazing to be in this time period where we can actually say, oh, let's survey all the people who made this kind of decision, who decided to have children and see if they're happier. And maybe that will help you decide if you want to have more children. Like that's amazing that we can do that now. Yeah. Um, so if we're going to, again, we're going to 
talk to the audience as if we're beginning to make plans that over the next thousand years, we're going to make a lot of the wrongs right. If we're going to create a morality, that morality would have to be flexible because humans are going to evolve. Uh, different geographies, different environments are going to play a part. Um, it, we can't, we're not going to be able to set one set of rules. We're not going to be able to um, create one way of doing things. So we have to allow flexibility in time and in space. Um, you're, you have to let the data bear out because if you think you're doing something good, then, and it turns out that you're hurting people and the data comes back that you're causing more harm, then you've got to have the ability to, to shift on a swivel and, and change things. As things are currently constituted, systems hinge on slow, slow change and things being relatively consistent from moment to moment. And systems don't handle disruption very well. But if we're going to create a universal system uh, or a morality, essentially, that people are going to operate by, that that has to be flexible. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to talk for a moment too. Um, this is this idea that uh, see how I want to frame this. I, I said something last week about the two kangaroos that were in kind of in a fight, and uh, I want to show a little video. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Any thoughts you before I I do this though? You don't. You may not even know what I'm about to do, but any thoughts from no, you about what we we'll, said? No, so we'll go far? there. But I want to get to this audience question when you're done. Please. When we're done Please. with this, we can even do yeah. that right now. That'll give me a moment. Okay. So this is from one of our longtime listeners, Debbie Joe. Um, I'm wondering about the problem with just trusting our own inner souls or our just kind of inner compass, our inner empathy to determine morality. I believe the vast majority of people are basically kind and honest. Mm. And then when she mentioned this to friends, they completely disagreed that they don't trust people, that they think people are selfish and mean. And so um, what would you say to someone who just said, my only morality is um, just my inner compass? What would you say to that? Yeah, I don't know that I want to trust everyone's inner compass, but I think the majority of us, when we have enough information to be informed, uh, when we have the data in front of us, I, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce off to something else. We we just talked. I just we just had a book club last night where we talked about the book Freakonomics. Have you ever read that? And the book goes into like, look, we can use economics to really get a different view and a very deep um, view about various hot button issues. And the one they used a bunch of them, but one of them in the book is abortion. And some of the data that they shared was that when you have abortion be accessible, affordable, and uh, there was a third thing, but when, but when abortion is uh, accessible and affordable to the general population, the crime rate in that area is significantly lower. It was like 20%. And so on the front end, all of us, um, to some degree, value life. I mean, there are people out there who don't, but most of us value life. It, and then, so there's a, a child about to be born, you know, it's months away from being born, whether we're talking early term or even for those who want to have the discussion about late term, we value that life and we don't want to harm it. But we also recognize for those of us who are pro-choice, we recognize that um, there's also be harm being done to the mother and the life situation and other people being affected. Freakonomics, the book, and I'm sorry, these are all real deep, complex 
conversations and tangents we're going to go off and do today. Um, in the book, it makes it clear that if you consider the mother's harm and that future child's life and the harm that that child might do, being raised in a situation where it's not really, I don't mean this coldly, but not really wanted that the person wants to get the abortion. Those po folks uh, in a predominantly high percentage end up turning to crime and often violent crime. And so the, the crime rate, rate went down like 20%. So back to the question of like um, inner, my inner voice is I, I do want to trust everybody's inner voice to make decisions for their life. Again, all of us are manipulating. All of us are lying in our life, whether we like to hear that or not, because we are favoring might be our children or our spouse. We are favoring our company over our competitor. Um, we're doing those sorts of things. But generally inside, our inner voice is telling us to reduce suffering. It's telling us to not cause intentional or unnecessary harm to others. And I think that we collectively can and have the ab good ability, if we change the system, to get information and make good choices about how we're going to behave as a society. The, the trouble is that both sides currently kind of pit against each other and an honest conversation about data and research and um, trying to figure out the best way to live isn't, isn't really the goal at the moment. This is, this is where our data, we really have to lean on the data because even though I agree with the comment that, you know, most people just want good things for other people. Right. And, you know, if it's someone who doesn't, it's a lot of times because of, of trauma and hurt and a disconnection within themselves that causes them to be able to be mean to other people. But it, it reminds me of when the atheists went to war against mother Teresa becoming a saint. And the reason was because even though you can see that she was trying to be kind to millions of people in poverty, the reality when you look at the data was she was very against contraception, condoms, abortion, of course, uh, because she's Catholic. And so when you look at some of the ways that she made decisions in these poor areas um, that I'm going to, because I love you and because of my beliefs, I'm going to give you a blanket. I'm going to do my best to have you turn to Jesus. When the data was showing, if we can get these women um, just general reproductive care, get them some money, get them some loans. We know from the data, the best way to get a country from poverty to prosperity is to give women reproductive rights over their own bodies. And then also some way of making money or taking care of themselves. And that's the best way to do it. Um, and so the atheists went to the war against Mother Teresa, not because she was like a terrible person, but because the approach of her kindness may have actually um, still kept the suffering going on for longer than someone coming in and saying, here's condoms. You can control when you have children. Here's a loan. You can make your little garden of potatoes and let's see where you can go, that kind of thing. And so to the point of, when does our inner morality have to be checked? It always has to be checked because even though we try to, 
to be kind, we can't always predict how that is going to affect the world. And sometimes we have to adjust how we show that kindness. There's a, I was watching in Michigan, there were these laws about, um, they were trying to help single women who had children by getting them some more subsidies. And then the way that it was staggered though, it, it became to the point that it was very obvious that if you just had, if you had five kids, if you just had two more kids, you could live off the government. And so it became an incentive, right, to have more children mm. so that you could um, live off of this certain government subsidy, right? And so it's, again, I think that was people trying to do the right thing, but now it was creating a system where it, where it was financially an incentive to have more children when you're already in poverty. And so all of those things have to be a part of a conversation. Your inner morality of I'm just trying to be a good person is not enough because we just are too limited to know how our actions are going to really affect the, dom you know, the domino effect into the world. And that's why we always have to be in conversation because even if we always try to be a good person, at some point we're going to be wrong about how we did that, about how we handled that. And only yeah. conversation and data can really help check us, um, even if you believe that people are by nature good. Yeah. And I wasn't being clear there, but that's exactly what I mean by having found this deep interest in the book Freakonomics was that when you rely on facts, research, data, again, it's not perfect. You pointed it out. We're always going to be messing this up. We're, we're never going to lay out a set of a thousand rules and it's going to perfectly accommodate a fully functioning moral society. Um, but by but by allowing ourselves to be checked, again, what religion does is it says it doesn't matter what science says. We already know the answer. And even if the answer contradicts with science, we're going to hold on to our answer. And by allowing science, research, data, facts to matter, you allow yourself to shift and move with your bad perspective being allowed to be changed rather than you feeling you have to hold on to it because you know that you and the creator of the universe are on the same page. And, and so um, I think, as you point out, and as I've said, most human beings have a decent moral radar. If we take an individual situation and say, hey, what do we do here with, you know, this lady who lives across the street and, you know, this happens and, and how do we, how do we help her out? Most people I think can come to pretty good answers about how to treat each other right and to be kind to each other. The, the trouble comes in when we feel a loyalty to a certain political side or to a certain religion that our, um, our assumptions aren't allowed to be tested and changed. And so this person who's asking, like, I don't know if I'm any good at knowing right from wrong. Well, again, let's put wise people together. Let's value research, science, and data. And let's do, and again, there's these, you talked about last week, uh, reciprocity and empathy. Um, those two things are a big deal. And they're going to tie into here on this video. Um, in fact, I'll put it up here on the screen and we can... We can show it, but let me get rid of that. So I, I won't play any sound here, but here's what's going on. They have these two monkeys. Again, monkeys don't have language the way humans do. Monkeys don't have religion. They don't have any comprehension at all that there is a supreme creator 
out in the universe. They did a test where they take these two monkeys and they keep them in separate um, separate cages or containers. And they, when they give both of them cucumber, they both are happy to have cucumber. When they give one grapes and the other cucumbers, notice that monkeys understand on some level fairness, right? So I'll play this here. So he gets the cucumber and he throws it back, right? And he slams his hand on the ground. He shakes the cage. I've seen this a couple of times and it yeah. is so funny. I'm going to pause that there and we'll just turn that back off. But, um, and, and there are other videos that demonstrate this. There are other, there are other ways to show that animals comprehend fairness. They, they already have worked out again. It's this sort of herd mentality, right? We're all going to need to perpetuate our species. And so over a million years, we've worked out the, rules by which we're going to play. And uh, I'm not saying it's a healthy morality or in, uh, unhealthy because there's certainly un unhealthy aspects. For instance, in orangutans, uh, often their mating ritual is that the male orangutans uh, chase after the female orangutans who are screaming and yelling and do not seem by their body language that they want to be caught. The male orangutan catches them, holds them down, and forces sex upon them. So you and I would look at that and go, if we had a, if those were humans with a, with a consciousness to tell a story about what's going on, we would call it rape. Right. Um, but that, but because it's an animal and they have no story, it's just their, their mating ritual. Um, animals are trying to perpetuate their species just like we are. We talked last week, I mentioned briefly that, and we talked about this in the free will discussion that, we humans make subconscious decisions 300 milliseconds before we make a conscious decision. Every single behavior that we humans do, there's often some semblance of the same thing in the animal kingdom. They don't have the stories to tell about why they do it, when they fight, why they have sex, why they get upset when they're getting a cucumber and their part, you know, their, their, their peers getting a grape. But they, they also feel the same sort of disturbances that you and I feel. We call it jealousy. We have a story about it. I, I walked into a room and, and the Gary, the guy I can't stand, is talking to my wife and he seems to be flirting with her, right? We, whereas in the animal kingdom, there's just a disturbance inside and a reaction. Um, and watching that they create rituals for that reaction. That was the big light bulb moment for me. Um, because I'm in all this, like you, like my scores in science in school were never really good. I was always like a history English. I was always trying to figure this out with philosophers. And then all of a sudden the light went on when I see the, the group of monkeys that, uh, you know, when they fight, I mentioned this last time and you hurt the other one, you fight a little bit too hard. You go steal a baby and you give them the baby. And it was like this light bulb moment of, mm. They felt something, they felt guilt, they felt I, I went too far, right? Without yeah. words, they went and they have a ritual just in their species of taking a baby from a mother and the mother knows what's going on and giving them the baby and then they give the baby back. It's not even their baby, it's just a random baby from the monkey tribe. And it was like this kind of like sacrament, right? It's like this kind of ritual that they created to get that feeling of I went too far out of their little monkey bodies. And that was such a light bulb moment for me 
because like I said last week, it's when morality goes from top down, right? God to scripture, to prophets, to leaders, to me, to morality being from the bottom up, right? From the animal kingdom up to us humans that in order to survive, we need to have these principles of reciprocity and justice and um, empathy embedded into our bodies, or we're not going to be able to survive as a tribe would we'll be too individualistic until, you know, until we can't survive. And so once I was able to switch morality from a bottom up concept that this comes from the animal kingdom up, that even rats have rules about how much you're allowed to win and lose. And they do this entirely without language, entirely without story. That was a huge light bulb moment from me of how I could rethink morality and it was already there in the animal kingdom i just wasn't looking yeah. um for so long i was i was you know looking in religion i was looking in scripture i was looking in prayer um but it was all because, there. because your outer authorities trumped data research science it doesn't teach you to be curious about the world outside of your lens um the question with the video is, you know, is human morality older than the invention of religion? And when you see, as you point up this bottom up perspective that you see that the animal kingdom has morality, it may be good or bad. We, again, we can debate that there is good. There's parts where we go like, yeah, that was nice of them to do that to each other. And there are other, for instance, they had another test where two monkeys are in separate containers and the food is outside the container with a rope on each side and they have to work together. And even when one monkey is fed and the other one is hungry, the hungry monkey has ways in which to convince the monkey who's eaten that he needs to still work together. And he's harder to get motivated. I but love that still... video, though, because you could put in the language like, hey, buddy, like you ate, yes. but I haven't eaten. Like you right. can see the language almost in his body language of like, hey, like, come on, <laughs> you know. And it's where the reciprocity comes in, because if if the monkey who's already fed doesn't help, then the other one won't help him the next time. So it's it becomes apparent the moment you don't have to have God be the author of morality and the arbitrator of it, then it becomes obvious that morality existed long before an idea that there was a God or an idea that God gave us this thing. And so soon as you see that... Um, that feeling uh, comes before story. It, it allows us to take the story layer completely away and go, you know, the, the hell with the idea of jealousy. Jealousy is a very modern term in the last whatever, you know, 100,000 years. Fear is an older word. And jealousy is, is fear, right? Fear that you're going to lose the thing you thought belongs to you. And so when we understand just basic human emotions, sad, angry, fear, you know, those ones, and we go into conversations with other humans who are bumping into us, and instead of going, yeah, I got really mad because da-da-da-da-da happened, and that happened, and this is what's going on, and I got pissed off. And No, no, if you just said, I'm feeling right now fear, it becomes so much easier for human beings to communicate to understand and to, without ego getting in the way, speak to what the other one is dealing with now. And that is harder than it sounds oh, because yeah. it is so tricky. I just learned a new one last week from the queen herself, Brene, 
I learned she was digging into resentment. Like, where is this feeling mm. coming from? Like, there's kind of like these families, like it's in the fear family, it's in the anger family. And so she said she thought it was in the anger family because resentment presents a lot of times as anger. And then is she Is this an digs, atlas of the heart? Or is this I don't know. Else? I don't okay. know. I'll have to look Sorry. it up. Um, mm, I think it was just like on a talk show. Like it was just okay. a cordial thing. And um, she said when she did dug into the data and dug into kind of the body and all this kind of stuff, she found that it wasn't in the anger family. It was in the jealousy family. You resent someone because you're jealous of something. So when I, if Chad were to, my husband were to come home and plop himself on the couch and I'm doing the dishes and he's watching TV and I feel my body fill up with resentment um, rather than see that as anger with a little bit more emotional education, I can tap in and say, I'm feeling jealous that he can tap out. And sometimes as a mom, I feel like I can't, and I'm going to go communicate that with my spouse. Mm. Um, but now I can communicate because of that, just like a little bit of an emotional intelligence piece that I'm still learning. I just learned that last week that that resentment comes from the the deeper feeling that you're feeling in your body is jealousy. Um, and that can, uh, guide you when you have to have a communication situation with whoever you're resentful of. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's hard because it's hard to name those sensations in your body. Um, we get really wrapped up into, into the feeling and into the story. And that's where really emotional education and mindfulness is the only way to combat that. Right. Um, if we appoint, so again, one of the questions I put in here was who are the rule makers? Who, who are the people who create the rules and the laws? And are those the people we currently have in our system in the United States of America or in a particular religion? Are those the folks we want creating the rules? And um, I think a lot about we could pick better people. We could come up with a better way to pick people who create the rules. And I don't care if it's disagreeing people. You could put Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris uh, and people like the two of them into a room and compel them to, to come up with a moral system. And I think it would be better than the folks who do it currently. Right. Um, I want to add another thing too, which is another idea that I think plays into this. And I mentioned maybe this last week, I don't know, but there is, there's a basic amount of, I think maybe I did. There's a basic amount of trauma that is just part of being a human being. It, it, the moment you're born, right? Just the birthing process uh, of the mother carrying the baby and then birthing it, she's experiencing trauma. The child that is coming out of the womb that is uh, that is being born is incurring trauma. The very first moments of human life outside of the mother's body involve trauma. You can't you can't escape it. In this entire world, you're going to experience it probably on a daily basis, at least at a minimal level. And so there's an agreed upon, like we all collectively go, hey, there's a certain amount of trauma that every one of us is just going to have to feel. And then certain people have challenges, disabilities. Um, they lose a loved one at an early age. They... Uh, were born without, uh, you know, an arm or they got into a car crash when they were 10 and it caused this problem. And so there is by happenstance, there is additional trauma because the world is just unfolding in front of us 
that we're also going to have to incur and there's not a damn thing we can do about it. But then something else happens and it's what we call, and, and people don't think, think of it this way, but when we talk about like racism, which is uh, a discrepancy in privilege, we don't recognize what privilege is. Privilege at its base core is the idea that I'm in a position to impose that a little bit of, or a lot of the trauma that I'm going to incur, I have the ability to pass it off to other people. And so I have the ability, because I'm a white male, uh, born in the United States of America, I'm, I'm cisgender, heterosexual, because of all of that, there are numerous opportunities for me to dodge away from the normal trauma that would happen in my life and uh, make it so that that trauma is incurred by others. And when we recognize it at that very base level, we can start to really do something about it. Like, oh, we don't want that to exist. And again, every single one of us in the ways that we're privileged are very scared about letting go of that privilege. You know, right? You're a woman. I'm a man. I have privilege in our society based on that. But you're also a white woman. And so you have privilege over certain people. Um, and and we've got to figure out, like, how do we put people at the forefront who are smart enough to go, how do we take away the ability to pass to someone else the trauma that you should naturally incur because the world isn't always going to be kind to you? And then make it make it that way we can start to create systems that have much more balance to them. But we're constantly fighting about the stories about all of it rather than seeing the base level, which really lets us get at it much faster and more effectively. Any thoughts from you there? Yeah, I am. This is a place where I get a little bit optimistic. I feel like every generation in the past, you know, when you look at, World War One vets and they come back and they're just totally damaged as humans, right? And then they just they just don't bond with their kids and then they die and then they have their issues and then they and you know some of this trauma is so generational, right? I mean, we're talking about sometimes long generational trauma. Mm. And really the access to understanding trauma and trauma therapy and the um the psychedelic studies that are coming out about, about processing trauma out of your bodies. And I've seen people when I've done these, you know, kind of group experiences, process things that um, they barely even remember, like their mother's trauma, right? Things like that. It, it makes me optimistic that what could humans do if we weren't just so trauma broken, you know, and we don't know the answer to that. But that's a reason to be hopeful about the human race, which I don't really usually get hopeful. I'm usually very blah and nihilistic and pessimistic and and philosophical and all the things. But the idea of a generation of humans processing and understanding trauma, understanding how emotions show up in their body, um, wow, that could that could lend to an entirely different way of being. Um, for a lot of yeah. people. So that's, a, yeah. that's, I mean, that makes me hopeful. Yeah. We've never really understood, you know, even, even as we're not even talking about 
10,000 years ago, we're talking about our grandparents didn't even yeah. really fundamentally understand trauma and how broken they were and how it affected them. Um, and so that, that could be a really positive shift, something to be hopeful for. And then the last thing I want to say before we jump back into some of the things on last week's outline that we didn't have a chance to get to. Um, I was trying to come up with a list of if, if I were the guy in charge, how would I build the system? And I listed nine things and I just want to just read them off. And if you have any thoughts on any of them, feel free to stop me or we can talk about them kind of collectively at the end. I put the morality creators would value data, science, and research. That would be number one. Number two, they would have wisdom. And again, we could pick a system that intentionally selects people that we collectively see as wise. Um, we could do that much better than we do today. Um, so they would have wisdom to see the potential ripples. Number three, they would have a healthy ego and be able to value ideas that are better than their ideas, even if that idea is only slightly better. In other words, they would be willing and able to go like, oh, I really, I, I like my idea because it's mine, but I'm willing to let it go because I see a better idea out there. And most people aren't very good at giving up their ideas in favor of other people's ideas, unless the discrepancy between how good their idea is and how mediocre or poor your idea is, is large. But we could select people who um, that discrepancy, they could, they could make that shift or change when that discrepancy is really small. Number four, they would comprehend that almost nothing is black and white and tough decisions will need to be made because almost nothing is a win-win uh, and almost never is it like one side would win if we did it and the other side completely loses. Like almost the entire world, whether it's abortion, drug uh, um, laws on drugs, whether it is um, uh, certain sorts of criminal violations, like nothing is black and white in this world. Uh, as you said earlier, anybody who thinks so, like you're you're off track. So tough decisions will need to be made and people need to comprehend that almost nothing is black and white, that there's always going to be some hurt or loss on one side in the midst of trying to even make the better choice. Number five, they would understand the premise that there is an amount of trauma and discomfort that is natural and unavoidable to experience. Number six, they would work to eliminate privilege, the ability to pass off one's discomfort and trauma to others. Seven, they would seek to help every human as responsible and healthy as possible. This would be a complete overhaul of the current education system, for instance, where every student would be taught deeply about managing intense feelings, taught to critically think, taught to discern truth over comfort, taught about consent and enthusiastic consent, how to support others' healthy, authentic self, conflict resolution, meditation, developing a softer or healthier ego. Number eight, they would recognize that reform and protecting the innocent are of more value than punishment. Uh, in other words, when you understand that there really isn't free will, and if there is, it's extremely limited, punishment is vindication and retribution um, the system should never work on those sorts of emotions and feelings, but instead should seek to protect the innocent from further harm and should seek to reform the people who um, seem to be struggling to make choices uh, and at times cause great harm. Uh, let's see here. And then number nine, compensation to the people who create the rules um, 
that compensation would value the best ideas and the best results and not charisma or unkept promises. Um, so anyway, th that's my list of, uh, if I were, if I were in charge, I would sit down and start to figure out how to create a system that has leaders in charge, um, that are able to work towards those goals. Any thoughts? A lot of thoughts. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a couple things. So it you disagree with any of, of those? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it. Um, no, but the first thing is it reminds me, you know, Plato wanted the world to be run by philosopher kings. And there's some yeah. things on this list that were like, you know, philosophers are good at seeing like, oh, there's two sides to this coin and not everyone's going to be happy and we're going to make a decision anyway. <laughs> like that was a lot of what I wonder if I made the list that Plato made of philosopher kings running the world, what you would think about that. Um, uh, for me personally, when I want someone in charge, I have just like one simple rule of like, this person is at least trustworthy enough to be a part of a conversation. So my gauge when I'm talking about leadership, you know, is this person worthy listening to is, can they, um, do they recognize the uh, weaknesses of their own side and do they call out their own uh, tribe? Do they call out their own echo chamber, right? So there are many times that someone like Sam Harris calls out the left. There are many times that Bill Maher calls out the left. There are many times that uh, Mitt Romney will call out the right. Yeah call out the people that support him. And when anyone on either side of, of politics or a conversation, when anyone will um, turn to their own side and say, you know, we've gone too far or we have to be aware of this or whatever, that person to me is instantly more, at least trustworthy enough to be a part of the conversation. If you can't turn to your own side and say, we're off base here, or this isn't the best tool, or we've gone too far, then to me, you're instantly not trustworthy enough to be a part of the conversation. So that's just an easy like guide for me. I really am drawn towards the voices who can call out their own echo chambers and take the heat that that's going to take, right? So I appreciate that. The one that I would push back on is number six. I think that one is missing something on 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 one of the sides here. So I I understand. Just one second. Are you okay? Okay. Shh. Lay down. Uh, my kids are out, but this one has a little fever, so he's staying home with mom. Um. So number six, I understand what you're saying by trying to eliminate privilege. The problem to me is that there's a difference between getting resources to the people who need them the most. So for example, children who have like an ACE score, you know, the trauma score that they do, it's like the ACE system of, and they have like 10 things, you know, they've been sexually abused and the whole list, they should have automatic healthcare. They should have an automatic therapist, right? That would help to get resources to the people who need it the most, right? Instead of therapists be only for rich white women or whatever. But my issue with the with that one is um, even though we all have certain cards that were dealt in privilege, um, it's just such an easy trap to become a victim to your own privilege 
and to also use that privilege. If you're in a system that's trying to eliminate privilege, then you can use your trauma to get to uh, kind of start manipulating the system to your best advantage. Yeah. And so yeah. there's no incentive to overcome the card that you were, you know, the hand that you were dealt. And that can become a problem for perpetuating everybody's a victim, right? And we're just all stuck in my, or in my victimhood and there's just not enough resources to help me because no one will, you know, come up, you know, fix my life. So that would be the one that just, that would be the one that stands out to me. That, yeah. that privilege piece, you could maybe think of it in terms of resources, but you have to be aware that if you're only giving resources to people who have the most trauma, you have to be really careful or else there is an incentive to stay in trauma, to stay yeah. in victimhood, to claim victimhood rather than overcome it. And that's I tricky. Love I love it. Even you and I aren't going to be able to agree exactly, huh? Now we add another thousand people and let's start making up rules. And now we're going to, have to debate things, right? A big, another big problem is that, um, is that the people who are most um, qualified to lead don't want to, right? That's always been the problem with leadership is that the best leaders are, are those who leadership is thrust upon them. And so how do we do that nowadays? You know, we can't just, we're so big and then now you have to be, you have to be campaigning to be a leader. And then that just will bring out a certain personality type. Right. Yeah. And so that's a big problem too. How could you even possibly find leaders when the best leaders are the ones that don't want to be? Yeah, no, totally. That's a problem. Totally. So those were some of the ideas kind of ruminating in my head as I was thinking about last week's episode and some of the other kind of tangents I went off into in researching and preparing for that conversation. Um, what were some of the things that we didn't get a chance to either get to or things that came up over the last week for you? Yeah, I have two other things that I wanted to, <coughs> excuse me, talk about. So one was pleasure and then the other one was guilt versus shame. So for pleasure, I get a lot of people in this debate who talk about like, if I didn't have a list of do's and don'ts, I would just be a heroin addict, right? What's stopping you from just going crazy on pleasure and destroying your life, right? And so there is this fear, especially in America. So America is shaped by Christianity, but a certain kind of Christianity, right? It's Puritanism. And so the foundation of our country is comes from this people when we're talking about white America, not native America. When we're talking about white America, this culture didn't like pleasure, especially female pleasure, right? Female pleasure is dangerous. It'll be um, out of control. It's socially unacceptable. And so that's why we have things like, you know, men we can say are, oh, that's just how men are. But women, you know, women can't be sluts and women when you look at even something like dessert advertisements, which I hate, it's like men can sit there on TV and like eat a steak and have a taco night and a beer and nobody cares. But these women advertisements, they make me want to shoot someone. They're like, at the end of the day, after you've done all the work and you've taken care of everyone else, you can go into your closet and have this tiny little piece of dark chocolate and it'll be our secret. 
because you just have a little, you know, and the names of these desserts are like little indulgence, little guilty pleasure, you know, and it's like, especially for women, you're taught that pleasure is this bad thing. It's going to lead to like social disgrace. You have to measure it. You have to like portion it out. You have to control it. And so a lot of times when I'm with a client, especially a female client, and you're um, reconstructing your morality kind of after deconstruction, you have to not just like we're doing here, rethink what is morality, but you also have to rethink pleasure. Because when you think of a cat or a dog that like walks past like a ray of sun, they'll just like lay there in the sun. Like, wow, that feels really pleasurable in my body. I'm just going to lay there for a little bit. <coughs> and so for pleasure, I think we do have to start um, as part of this redefining morality and separating it from Christianity in America of saying pleasure is a gift and it's a birthright. You have it just because you exist in a body. You don't have to have more moral worth by denying it to yourself or earn it or like do all the dishes so that you can have your little one piece of dark chocolate, but that's it, you know, as a woman. And so you have to also really think about false pleasure versus real pleasure because the society is going to tell you that, you know, going shopping and beauty treatments and these are all pleasurable. And you have to start checking in with your body and what's pleasurable with my body. And just like we do with morality, where you're checking into your inner moral compass, you actually do have to start checking in with your what gives me pleasure in my body and how can I increase that in my life? And there's no shame around that. And so like eating a piece of cake with your full intention, with your full attention, and it's your birthday and your friends are around, someone made this for you, it's very pleasurable. But when you eat 10 pieces of cake because you're watching Netflix and you don't want to think about your feelings, that's a false pleasure, right? That's an escaping pleasure. And so I do think when we're redoing morality, you have to rethink pleasure. And so I wanted to ask you, because you're someone who, as soon as you deconstructed, you were like, I want to try coffee. This is, I really love this. I'm really expanding this. You really kind of opened the boundaries on um, pleasure. And so I just wanted to know, like, did you have any rough roads with that? Are there things that you had to learn? You, for example, don't, even though you can get drunk every weekend, there's no commandment in your life that says you can't, you don't. And I think some people have a hard time understanding that. So, so give me a, give me a glimpse into how it was for you after kind of leaving religion. How did you kind of reclaim pleasure and not get drunk every weekend, which you don't. Like, how did you begin to kind of have that conversation with yourself? You asked a similar question last week, and I talked about how um, me and the people around me is my, you know, my friend group is making decisions about how they live their life and how I live mine. We tend to be folks who read a lot and research things and and try to know as much as we can around an issue before we step into something we've never done before. So as I went and tried coffee, I drank coffee as a, as a teenager a little bit. And when I went back to it, it was very different than I remembered it. Um, I know a lot of people around me who enjoy coffee, but when I first started drinking it, it didn't taste good without me adding a ton of stuff to it. It made my heart race a little bit. It, uh, excuse my language, but screws up your, uh, your 
bathroom processes, right? Like it messes all that up. But I was so dead set that this innocent thing that my system had hijacked and said was bad that I was going to give it a full shot. So I really did for months try different things. And eventually, you know, at some point, my taste changed where it was delicious. Not only delicious, it like it's a big part, not because it's um, I'm addicted, but because it it is a big part of my morning. It tastes good. It helps my mood. Uh, it does help me get moving. But that's coffee. Um, when it came to alcohol, you know, you mentioned that I don't get drunk. I don't, I don't like it. So when I go out drinking, if my, if I'm at a party and my friends are drinking, there are times where I will choose to, uh, drink alcohol. Most of the time I take cannabis and I really like what that does for me in lots of ways. But when I would drink alcohol, it would do the social lubricant thing. It would make me more social. It would have me being easier going and, uh, more of an extrovert. Um, people, all my friends report that they really like uh, drunk Bill better than high Bill. Um, but what I found was that I, I just wasn't having as good of a time inside my head. And when I woke up the next morning, once in a while, I would not feel good. Um, it was harder to get moving. I've never taken cannabis and woke up the next day and had anything other than a great mood. Um, it's just easy to be good and happy. So whenever I'm going to try something, I'm just reading about it. I'm studying it out. I'm seeing what other people's experiences are. And I don't, you know, we all feel pressure to do the things our friends are doing or the things that our system tells us to do. But I was trusting my own inner gut. And if my gut tells me that alcohol isn't really the best thing for me, then I for the most part, tend to stay away from it. Um, I don't feel like I was ever lost. Leaving religion and depending entirely on my own intuition with advice and information from the outside world, I just never felt lost. I felt like it really was easy to do. And um, it, it was really, it, it really came very natural to me. I wonder, yeah, I think that makes sense to me too. But I do think that there's something to be said for it. It seems to be better for human development to have an ego and a community and, uh, you know, have some order and then kind of deconstruct versus the other way around where you have. So like if at 16, I didn't have any rules around alcohol, I think it would have been harder for me to check in with myself and say, you know what, this doesn't feel great in my body and I don't like how I feel the next morning. And uh, the studies are kind of showing it's not really great for your brain. And I don't think that I would have had the maturity to have that self knowledge. I would have been far too, de too dependent on, you know, your friends just mean so much to you when you're that age. And so I think that is part of it, but it is something that I work on when I'm helping someone kind of recreate their morality is really checking into your body and claiming something is pleasurable and noticing when you are using pleasure to escape, right? We've all used pleasure to try to escape our feelings. And when we're just actually feeling pleasure in our body and really deciding, you know what, I like these things. These things feel really good. I, I love being a human when I'm doing these things getting drunk every weekend. That's not the person that I want to be. Doesn't feel great. I don't, you know, 
um, that knowledge is kind of in your body. Um, but I do think that if I would have been trying that at 16, I might've been too young to grasp that. And so it may be something that, um, like many things, it's kind of helpful to have the rules of the game when you're a little bit younger so that you can have some scaffolding to make those decisions when you're a little bit older. And when you talk about something innocent like coffee, coffee isn't going to affect anyone else, right? I mean, I'd have to drink in a uh, four or five cups and suddenly maybe I'm going to have a health event while I'm driving or something. But drinking coffee isn't going to make a difference towards anyone else. When it comes to pleasure, what I think we have to be really careful of is there are certain human pleasures, especially in the realm of sexuality, there are certain uh, human pleasures which also often takes place in the space of other humans. And so um, a bigger deal to me is that we don't cause uh, intentional harm or unnecessary harm. Um, and, and so if you're going to, for instance, you've mentioned several times in um, episodes in the last few weeks about how some people live in the lifestyle of non-monogamy. And that's certainly a conversation that deeply interests me. My sexuality isn't uh, a clean cut box that fits inside Mormonism super perfectly, right? So as I've thought about those kinds of questions, it has sent me over the last five or six years in a curious mode, learning about consent, watching the video with the the T for instance, and really sitting down and going like, hey, if you live in a world where you're allowed to make reasonable requests from other humans about anything, about, hey, would you would you rather go, would you mind sacrificing going to the Mexican restaurant so that I can so that I can get Italian tonight? Like anytime we make a request to another human being, our differences against their differences are going to bump into each other. And we have to conduct ourselves in ways that are responsible to the other life forms around us. And so when it comes to pleasure, I'm much more concerned about how do I get the pleasure that I want? Because I think if you want, if you went around to a thousand people and you said, nobody, nobody gets hurt. Nobody has any negative emotion. Nobody has any problem. There aren't any rules. There is no God. Like, what would you do? And most people would be like, man, I'd have sex with everybody. I'd try all these things. I'd do this. I'd do that. But inevitably, when you live a life where you pursue your pleasures, you're going to bump into people and you need to work out on the front end because it's a whole hell of a lot healthier than on the back end. You need to work out how you're going to do that responsibly without causing unnecessary harm or trauma to another individual. And so when it comes to pleasure, yes, we need to be responsible about the pleasures we take. We can't eat the 10 slices of cake, but we can have the birthday cake. Um, I'm, I'm much more concerned that, hey, you should be able to have all the sex you want You should be able to eat at all the restaurants you want to. You should be allowed to try all the foods or listen to the music at the party that you want. But you also have to be cognizant that there are other people in this same space and their wants and needs are different than yours. And um, it, it um, it isn't responsible to think that you get to have all of your needs met while bumping into people around you. You have to figure out how you do that in a responsible way. And even if you do it the most responsible way, you are going to cause uh, what I call disturbances in other people. You're going to bump into each other inevitably. 
Which brings us to our last topic, which is what do we do with guilt? When you've, re when you've redefined morality, what do you do now with guilt? And so, of course, you know, Brene tells us that shame says, I am bad. And guilt says, you know, I made a mistake. And shame says, I am the mistake, right? And so shame, we don't, doesn't seem to have any kind of productivity to it. Um, all shame needs is like secrecy and silence and judgment to grow. And then it becomes this really big part of your shadow self. And it's going to just F you up in all kinds of ways. Um, so shame is something, you know, it just doesn't seem to be helpful or productive and something you work with a therapist to try not to take on as much as possible, but guilt is different. So guilt um, is this evolutionary tool like empathy. And it's a signal uh, when you're talking about us as animals, it's really a signal that there was an opportunity for bonding that was missed and needs to be reconciled. Or it's this red flag that says something happened here that was not according to my values. And so once you remove guilt from shame, which usually has to happen for people who come from a Christian background, especially because if you come from Christianity, your guilt and shame are going to be all wrapped up into each other. But once you take the shame out, guilt can just be this nice, actually helpful little tool for um, saying, oh, I have, here's my moral course that I've charted. Here are my core values and here's my integrity and my honesty and all these things. And guilt can just be like this little red flag that says, Hey, we've kind of gone off your, your moral path here. And so guilt can be just a very good way to live a moral life is to notice when you feel guilty and to reconcile whatever needs to be reconciled. And so what happens, like, let's say that you're the monkey who fought too hard, right? And you had that ritual of stealing the baby. If you take away that little ritual, you're going to feel that in your body for longer. And so something I've had to do with, with clients sometimes is if they have this feeling of guilt and they used to use this tool of putting it on Jesus, right? But now they don't believe in Jesus. And so now they're just stuck with this guilt in your body. You have to actually find new tools, a new ritual. Mm, I love this. You have to say, okay, stealing that baby or the Jesus or whatever the ritual was to get guilt out of my body. Um, I have to have a new ritual here. And you do kind of have to have something. Um, or else you're just kind of stuck with this guilty kind of pattern in your body. And so even today, um, you know, I really, when I feel guilty, rather than having that out of getting to like pray about it and say, sorry, I actually do try to deal with it more with the person, right? That's always the first thing. Um, but then if it's something like bigger or it's something in my personal life that I did, that it's not easy to reconcile, I'll still do something. I'll make up a ritual. Science says it doesn't matter. Even if you know it's made up, it still helps. Um, and for mine is like writing, like I'll, I'll write something out, something that I really want to let go of, something that I do that I just really, I feel guilty about and you burn it or you go into a body of water with an intention and kind of bury yourself in the water and come back up. Anything with fire and water are really common ones in religion, just because they're just really natural and powerful. And I still will make some kind of ritual 
to say, you know what, I, this is my moral compass. I was feeling guilt because I was off over here and I need to self-correct. And so I do think it's something in the secular world we have to talk about. Otherwise, um, all the religious people have tools for dealing with guilt in their bodies. And then the secular people just don't. And so that's something that I think you, you have to, so the first thing is like getting the shame out from the guilt. Guilt is a good thing. And then when you have something maybe weighing on you, that's really heavy, having something that you can do to help you process that out of your body or else you're left without a tool and that's not good either. Yeah. I mean, uh, ducks, for instance, if they bump into each other, the duck will just swim a little bit away and he'll just flap his wings for a couple of seconds, you know, and that, that gets rid of that energy that, and again, I don't mean energy in a, in a woo way. I just mean like there's this buildup of tension inside us and by flapping by exercise basically, or exerting ourselves, we can dispense some of that. So I think you make a really good point, which is yes, religion created scapegoats. It, it, it created ways in which that maybe weren't very functional um, in terms of making the world a better place, but they allowed us to pass on uh, that tension either out into the outside world or to other people or whatever. Um, we do have to create ways in which people can process uh, what's happened to them and regulate when, uh, when tensions inside them arise and be able to handle those things in a healthy way. Again, we're nowhere there because nobody, you and I weren't raised, at least I can speak for myself. I, I look back at all my education, um, K through 12 in Northern Ohio. I went to Bowling Green State University for about three and a half years and nowhere did really anyone give me the real life tools that I wish they would have. Um, Things like consent that I mentioned earlier, things like uh, how to process trauma, things like meditation. Um, those things were just not part of my growing up. And so we weren't really given the tools to be a healthy, functioning human adult. Some of us get lucky and we get curious about the world and it kind of we kind of come in contact with those things. But the majority of the world isn't being raised with those things as tools being trained to them or taught to them. So what do you do? Like if you were to have something really big that you did, like you just, you got a little drunk and you just were really, really a big ass at a party. Like you were just an ass hat. So mm -hmm. what do you, do you still feel guilt? Do, will you mm -hmm. use that to go now talk to these people? Do you notice mm -hmm. those things? Cause some of our, our commenters are interesting because some of them still have guilt, like they haven't completely deconstructed. Like one one of our audience members said, you know, when if I swear, I still feel guilty, even though I know that I shouldn't. Some people say that they don't even really experience guilt anymore now that they're out. So how do you feel guilt now, now that you're out? And how does that drive your decisions? I feel, I still feel shame and guilt when, when an old pattern shows up again. So I was a very unhealthy young adult and there were lots of ways in which I caused harm and trauma and manipulation to get my wife and kids to do the things I wanted them to do so that my world, internal world could be okay and external, but internal world really. Um, sometimes those patterns show up again now. And when they do, I feel shame because I feel like, oh, you still haven't conquered this thing. 
And so you just must be something, must be something wrong with you that you're not able to, to be better than that. But what I find when I hurt another person unintentionally, or no, let me say it differently. When I hurt another person intentionally, I cause unnecessary harm or trauma in the world. Um, I feel like shit. And when I go to the person that I hurt and make amends as much as I can amends to the same degree at which I hurt them. So in other words, if I were to uh, say something that offended or embarrassed somebody in a public space, writing them a text the next day and saying, hey, I'm really sorry I shouldn't have done that isn't going to quite fix it because their offense took place in a public arena. So you have to kind of meet it at the same level. So what I've done in the past when I've put my foot in my mouth, um, if it happened in front of people, I try as much as possible to put um, either put everybody in a message or to stand up in front of that group and to say, I'll give you an example. Um, I was at a pool party a few weeks ago and I was introduced to the host. I was told her name. Uh, I'm having about an hour conversation with her. I'm curious about her. I'm asking her about her life. When we got done, uh, I was, I had taken edibles that night. I was high as a kite and I sometimes struggle to manage, um, short-term memory. Like I'll, I'll be told something an hour later. I can't pull it out from my brain. So we're sitting around in a group towards the end of the party. And somebody told me to hand something, uh, to the host who I had already spent an hour that evening getting to know. And I just, I just, I just messed up. I just couldn't put two and two together. And I wasn't able to like process the, the idea and hand them the thing. And so somebody's like, Hey, it's the host, you know, the person you were talking to earlier. And I knew I had offended her because I had, it, it appeared as though I had just not really taken seriously our interaction. Right. So a couple minutes goes by, I could have easily just ignored it, been like, ah, just forget it. What I did was I waited till there was a moment and a pause. And then I looked at everyone. I, I said, Hey guys. And I looked around at everyone. I said, Hey guys, I said, I just want to apologize. And I said her name. I said, I want to apologize to her. It sounded earlier. Like I didn't even know who she was. I just want to say, I, I did take seriously my conversation earlier with her. I, I can tell you these things about her. And I named four or five things that I had talked to her about in the course of that hour. And I saw her immediately went from like this cold stare to a smile. Because I fixed it in the same sort of situation as it happened in. So whatever I took away from her, I gave back. And I, I think that whenever we're in situations where we cause offense, and it is legitimately lays at our feet, that we ought to apologize and make amends to the same degree. And when we do, it seems like those feelings inside are allowed to go away, and we can then start back from neutral again. Um, I don't, I think if you lie to yourself and pretend that it wasn't a big deal, I, I don't know that you can process that stuff. I do think there's also even more of an incentive to do like what you did because without that little like prayer move that you can do where this, I'm thinking of my grandma. My grandma was, she was a little bit abusive to my mom and her siblings when they were growing up. And so I asked her about it one time, um, kind of in a coy way or whatever. And she said, you know what? I, I, 
once I was feeling really bad about that and I just, I turned to Jesus and Jesus took those sins from me, but she hadn't had the conversation with the kids about, Hey, I'm sorry that I, you know, screamed at you guys and beat you with wooden spoons and such. And so when you take away that little piece, the only way to deal with that guilt is to deal with it in the situation, which can be really healthy, which can be really good for your relationships. So, yeah. So back to our original post, the original question was, how do you do morality without God? I mean, we've got science guided morality, which is amazing that we've never had before that can really help guide our decisions. We've got guilt that helps us kind of course correct. And we don't Mm -hmm. get to do the little spiritual bypassing of just like putting it on Jesus. Right. We have we know what our core values are. Um, We, you know, integrity, you have um, you've unpacked pleasure so that you know how to experience pleasure without using it to only escape. I mean, we've listed all of these things that you have, you know, in conversation. Um, And when you come up with everything that we've talked about for living a moral life, it's as good of a list as what any human can do. Or any religion has given us. Yeah. And what the religion has given us is kind of the uh, history of the conversation which can be helpful. That's one thing that maybe we've underestimated. The one thing that I think I sometimes envy is that atheists don't have a book to say, let's at least like ground the conversation with this story, right? We'll just start here. And we kind of don't all have the same book. And sometimes I do envy that. Like, can we just all read Harry Potter or something, anything? I don't even care because The thing that I think religions have that I'm sometimes envious of is if morality is a conversation, they have a 2000 year conversation. And there's a lot of really good nuggets in that conversation, good and bad to learn from. And um, I do sometimes envy that, you know, I wish there was, I wish there was a place to go where we were all reading the same chapter of something and we could all talk about it because if morality is Um, really just an understanding of yourself and how yourself has to navigate with the world. And that is the conversation around morality, reciprocity and justice and empathy that, that you have internally and you're bumping into these other people. Um, Then having places that are structured for that conversation, religious people have that they can meet every Sunday and have that conversation whereas atheist people don't tend to have that built in anywhere. And, and I do sometimes become envious of that. Yeah. You mentioned the book. I mean, we, we meaning those who don't subscribe to any particular religion, we need a vehicle by which to pass wisdom down, right? Because as an atheist, if there are very few atheists who are going to continue to uh, take up their time reading scriptural canon, And as you point out, that's the record of the conversation, good and bad. And even in our faith system, every six months uh, that our church leaders would get together and hand out a whole new packet of ideas and thoughts. And some of those were good and some of those were bad. But at least it gives you a place, as you point out, to ground the conversation. So we need a vehicle by which to accumulate um, our, our best ideas so that as time goes on and the world shifts, we can reevaluate those and adapt. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's the the one of the guys that we you and I follow, Alain Debuton. He runs the School of Life, and he actually runs. He does like a sermon every Sunday in a place that looks like a church, um, specifically because there are so many people that just say, "Hey, I just want to go somewhere and talk to people about this stuff." Sometime, you know. Um, so that piece is still we're still trying to develop that in the world. Um, but I think, I think it'll happen. Maybe not in our lifetime, but I, I, I think it will happen because it's just yeah. a need, you know, you, you have to have stories that we read together to learn about how to be moral people, right? That it can't happen in a vacuum, but interesting stuff. So next week, Bill, we're going to do spiritual bypassing. And the reason that I'm so excited to talk about this with you is because this is one of those things that. This exists just as much outside of religion as it does in religion. Um, and I wondered, I just this, this past few days, I was, I was um, watching the documentary on Teal Swan. Have you gone down that rabbit hole? <laughs> so I'll have to send you that. But next week, we're going to be talking about spiritual bypassing. And I'm really, really excited to show this will be a place where... Um, the dangers of spiritual bypassing are just as prevalent on this side of life, this side of the conversation as when you're in, just because it's such a human response and that'll be such a good podcast. So should I watch Teal Swan before we have that conversation? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I'll go start it right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. thank you everyone spiritual for bypass. listening. Hopefully our thoughts on morality help you at least feel like, if you're in the mess of trying to figure out right from wrong, we're in that with you. It's always been, it's always been a conversation. Um, even when it didn't seem like it, you know, that was just an illusion when it felt like it had closure. Um, it's always been this, it's always been a conversation. That's all we've had for morality. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff, by the way, this is the last couple of weeks have been a lot of fun to kind of work through this idea and so much stuff has come up. I, I think, again, healthy, when we're healthy, when we're really curious about the world, and we really want to be better people, we will little by little get better at figuring out what is fair, what is healthy, what is appropriate, what is responsible um, as we as we dive into our daily life. And I think this podcast is part of that. I hope it is. And I hope it, yeah, I hope it is for the audience too. So appreciate everybody for listening. And uh, next week we'll do spiritual bypassing. Yeah, folks. Appreciate it. Hit the subscribe button, hit the like button and uh, share the podcast where you can. And if you can drop us a little donation, but we appreciate everybody uh, who watches and we hope you get something out of it and uh, hope you have a great day. Thanks everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.